My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's Dungeon Master interview, I talked to Randy, also known as Party of Bards. Today we talk about failing forward, semi-organized play, co-game mastering, player-facing information, room difficulty, and more. Remember, if you're interested in being on the show, there is a form you can fill out in the description. You should also check out our Discord server because you'll get notified when I have new interview slots open up. And with that, let's get started. Today I have Randy, also known as Party of Bards, with me. Hi, Randy. Howdy. How are you today? I am good. How are you doing? Doing very well, thank you. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got started in tabletop role-playing games? Sure thing. Uh, So, like mentioned, my name is Randy. Uh, I am 34, currently living in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, working in education, and uh, have been playing RPGs for a good long while. Been interested in RPGs much longer. Uh, I was one of those kids uh, growing up in kind of a rural town. Not a lot of other nerdy folks nearby necessarily. So I loved stuff like Baldur's Gate and uh, Planescape on uh, on my PC when I was younger. Uh, and two years after all that, uh, I uh, was at a summer camp I used to go to called Vampy which is uh, the summer camp for verbally and mathematically precocious youth. Uh, You can tell they let the first class of kids name that one, right? (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, uh, that was sort of my nerd nirvana and coming out of my nerd shell in a lot of ways. Uh, And that first year, I recall uh, this older guy who walked around dressed like Neo from the Matrix at all times, uh, sitting a bunch of us down on uh, the lawn and expounding to us the principles of D&D from his uh, 2E uh, AD&D manual. Uh, This was just a few months before 3E came out. And that kind of lit a spark for me. Uh, One that I wouldn't really get to take a lot of advantage of for quite a while. Um, I would play at that summer camp on and off during the summers. A few years later, I worked as a counselor at that summer camp, and I would sometimes run some really basic adventures for the kids uh, by that time, you know, in fourth edition. Uh, and then uh, finally, in 2013, uh, you know, I've been living here in Raleigh for a little while, was looking for different ways to socialize and meet people, uh, and I came across, and, and in retrospect, I realized that this sounds very sketchy, uh, but I came across a uh, Craigslist ad uh, advertising D&D games, uh, and for whatever reason, I decided to respond to that and go meet these people in person that I had never seen before. Uh, and happened, it just so happened that this was basically a, a local RPG group uh, called RTR, Raleigh, Ta- Raleigh Tabletop RPGs, uh, that was running D&D encounter sessions at a local game store. Uh, so that really kind of like got me really into the groove, actually playing like a semi-proper campaign with a pretty regular group of people. And from that point forward, I was just off to the races. Uh, I spun up my first campaign in Pathfinder uh, just a few months later in June of 2013. Uh, I started up a sci-fi campaign uh, in uh, the Fate system in 2014. Uh, And since then, you know, I've 
you know, I've helped run other campaigns. Uh, I've launched a couple of more campaigns myself. I'm getting ready to spin one up. But yeah, pretty much from 2013 onward, two or three nights a week, any week, I'm probably playing RPGs with friends. That's awesome. That does seem kind of sketchy, though, because I have not... Um, I guess I wouldn't have thought to look on Craigslist for a D&D listing, but I've never heard of people actually advertising on there. Apparently, you know, back back then, they were putting up ads anywhere they could. So they had, you know, a Facebook group. They had the meetup group. Uh, they had, like, actual paper, paper flyers on, you know, post-it boards at game stores. And sure enough, they had a Craigslist ad, and I saw that. Well, it can be somewhat difficult to find um, people to play with, especially I'm from a small town in Minnesota, so... I'm like one of maybe two people probably in the town that play, you know, so there's, depending on where you're at, it can be kind of hit or miss. So I, I guess I do understand wanting to kind of advertise that you have games available or that you're looking to play. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, Raleigh is kind of an interesting spot for that insofar as uh, we're in the Research Triangle Park region of North Carolina. Uh, so there's a bunch of universities all around us, and there's a bunch of like high-tech companies uh, within RTP. So basically, there's a pretty big confluence of nerdy people, but most of them are pretty recent arrivals. So being able to kind of like pull those people into the local community is always a little bit of effort, but it definitely pays off. And it sounds like you're pretty well-rounded. You mentioned quite a few different... Um systems that you've played and run do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah sure thing <laughs> so uh after some furtive starts uh with D D 3 and 4e um yeah the first game i really started uh running properly was pathfinder uh i had never played pathfinder uh but i decided that it's what the internet told me was the cool system for fantasy games and I had this uh, uh, old, you know, fantasy novel series that I'd been trying to produce for, you know, a decade by that point. Uh, so I decided that Pathfinder would be the perfect engine to run that with. So I immediately start this campaign with, like, a 90-page guide of, like, no, not 90 at that point. It was shorter then. Maybe 20 pages to start with. Maybe got closer to 90 by the end. 20-page uh, guide of home rules and homebrew races to play and, like, a totally unique pantheon. So I just ripped the guts out of the game system before I, you know, set foot in the world for the first time. That had its ups and downs. You know, I might have uh, nixed resurrection magic from the get-go for plot reasons, and that kind of throws off Pathfinder a little bit in terms of its expectations. Uh, but what I quickly found is that it wasn't really enabling me to do all the things I wanted to do. You know, it was the big popular system and that made it really easy to recruit players with. Uh, but it was so heavily focused on character builds and that kind of like nitty gritty tactical combat and, you know, break things down to six second increments and, you know, min max all the best moves, which don't get me wrong, is very cool. And, and I completely see the appeal of it. And I spent many hours as a GM you know, tweaking my NPCs and enemies to get just the coolest bonuses and the best numbers. But uh, at the end of the day, I was kind of burning out on it. Um, it was a lot of work, and it felt like half the time I would totally undershoot the difficulty I needed, and half the time I'd totally overshoot the difficulty I needed. 
And we spent more time arguing about numbers and rules than we really spent, you know, digging into the story and role-playing. And that's, again, not a universal experience with Pathfinder or D&D, but uh, it's what I kept running into, and it was really starting to get under my skin. So I started looking into what else is out there, you know, what else do people play with? And I kind of fell into just, like, the story game's rabbit hole almost immediately. Uh, so, you know, then in 2014, kind of one of the big new players on the scene was Fate Core, uh, this revision of the older Fate system. And, you know, Fate is pretty wildly different from any kind of D20 system. You know, you're rolling these six-sided dice that only have plus, minus, and blank on them. So, you know, your die roll is negative four to positive four at the most. Uh, you're, there's no classes whatsoever. Your character is basically just a bundle of skills that you pick from a giant list and you can put a few points into. Uh, and most of your sort of prowess in the game world comes from writing out your aspects, which are these sentences you make up to describe your character. And whenever those sentences are relevant to what you're doing, you can pay an in-game resource and get a bonus. Uh, so it's very narrative. It's very numbers light. It's all about, you know, creating a cool flowing action adventure pulp story with your friends, which felt a lot closer to what, what I was kind of seeking. Uh, and I fell in love with that completely. Um, but you know, then a couple of years later, time goes by, I'm kind of getting that itch again. Uh, and so my local friends here, uh, were starting up this campaign called new guard. Uh, which is run using the Mutants and Masterminds 3rd Edition system. Uh, it's a superhero, it was a superhero teen uh, high school drama kind of game. Uh, so got pulled into that, fell in love with it. You know, the next year, uh, some of those folks uh, were going to start up another campaign. Uh, we were calling Corsair Stir Fry, and it was going to be in the exalted 3rd Edition system. And if Pathfinder is crunchy, I don't even know how to begin to describe Exalted. Uh, the numbers are just ridiculous. I remember there was a point in one of the very first sessions we ran uh, where uh, one of the women playing uh, was making her attack roll and literally couldn't hold the bundle of like 40 plus dice. It just didn't <laughs> fit in her hands. Oh, dear. Um, so, you know, a pretty marked difference, but it really hits all those kind of like kung fu movie wuxia kind of vibes really well and it was a lot of fun um not long after that i start going out to gen con uh and you know my technique at gen con is to just you know go into the uh, uh event search window and check every little game system that i don't recognize or i've like vaguely heard of once or twice in the internet uh, and then just fill out, you know, a four sessions a day, four days straight session, uh, schedule as much as possible with just weird indie stuff, you know, probably run out of guys who wrote it in their basement or whatever. Uh, it's kind of hit or miss. <laughs> I've definitely played in some things that uh, maybe need a little bit more time in the oven, uh, but I also <laughs> got exposed to a bunch of really great stuff. You know, I started playing some Powered by the Apocalypse games, you know, Monster of the Week and Masks, which I really love. It's a really different kind of superhero game than uh, Mutants and Masterminds. Um, you know, I've gotten to play a bunch of just kind of funky one-off systems with my friends locally. Uh, here, you know, in RTR, uh, we host these uh, kind of mini-cons uh, a couple times a year, call them our special events. And people can, you know, just run 
one shots of whatever sounds cool to them. So yeah, I got to play stuff like uh, uh, Everyone is John and, and you know, stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, basically at this point, I'm just kind of always searching for that next cool thing. Uh, and I've kind of maybe come to some sort of karmic balance in that I can find some joy in the crunch and in the narrative. And maybe there is some perfect spot in the middle, but I haven't quite found it yet. Yeah, that sounds... Um, I mean, you've definitely had more experience in terms of just playing in more systems than I have, but I I feel like that's kind of been my transition too, is it started with D&D and the Fantasy Flight Star Wars game, and then it's kind of slowly moved my preferences to, to want to try kind of everything and then see which one kind of hits that balance between letting you do stuff narratively that makes sense and also having maybe just a little bit of crunch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, it is like a, a weirdly hard balance to strike. I don't, I don't know if anybody has perfected it yet, but I'm definitely looking. And honestly, you know, hearing you talk about the, the old, you know, fantasy flight star Wars games a couple times, I've always wanted to try that. Cause I love that idea of those like crazy narrative dice. They have your die roll kind of, determines like what's sort of happening situationally as well as numerically. I think that's like super cool. I love like goofy kind of quirky mechanics like that in games. So uh, I'm a little envious that you got to play that. <laughs> um, maybe I'll have to run a one shot in that here soon on the server that you can get in on. Um, it, <clears throat> I think that's what kind of sparked my love for dice pool systems because it's fun to, to be like, Oh, I get all these dice to roll. And then, you know, the GM adds on all of the kind of opposite negative dice for depending on the difficulty. And really, once you get used to kind of the cancellation of the dice, um, it's really not too bad. And especially if you're using an online dice roller, it'll just tell you, like, here's your net result. So it's it's a lot faster than doing it, you know, by actually reading the dice. Um, but, yeah, I, I do like the mixed successes and or partial successes failure with the bonus that kind of not just a binary yes or no yes absolutely that was honestly one of the things that drove me nuts you know in those early days trying to run D D. and you know now i'm i'm further along in my career as a gm and a player alike and and i've heard a lot of really great advice of like you know even in D&D, don't let, you know, a fail just be a, a stopping point. You know, you should still build off of that in the narrative. But I remember it was just so maddening that you'd be in the midst of a session, you need to find a clue, four players, you know, roll 10 or under on their investigate checks, and the GM's just kind of sitting there like, well, I don't know what to do to tell you guys what to do next. Uh, <laughs> so all those, all those systems that kind of embed that mixed success, partial failure kind of mechanics and, and directly advise the GMs to let players kind of fail forward, uh, are just, you know, in, in my book, amazing. And, and I think that's such a great technique to be able to teach and, and, you know, use in games. I think it, especially with like D and D, it can come down to the, the DM because the DM is free to do those partial successes, like with the investigations or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. but it's not part of the rules, like you said. So like if you're maybe a new DM and you're not used to, or don't know that you sh should maybe 
kind of fail forward with certain things, you might uh, just get into that situation where they just are like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you, but like in another system, it would be like, oh, well, you failed, but there's this other thing that happens because of that, and it kind of kind of urges you to be a better DM in that way by just kind of putting it into the rules. Yeah, I I agree completely. Um, uh, actually, had a thought, and then I completely lost it. But yeah, I I think that's uh, that's just a really solid you know technique to teach, kind of like we were saying. Um, yeah, I lost other thoughts, so I'll let you ask another question. <laughs> um, you mentioned your uh, organized play events. Is that your? Um, uh, just explain that maybe. Your thing. So, you know, I've already kind of mentioned RTR a couple of times. Uh, and, and you know, I'll just say, you know, as more of a formal introduction, uh, there are very few things in my life that I have as much pride and affection for as I do RTR. Uh, ever since kind of getting drug in through Craigslist uh, and getting exposed to a bunch of really cool games and a bunch of really friendly, awesome gamers, uh, RTR and that community here in Raleigh have become a really just huge part of my life. And a lot of my friends that I've made uh, have come from that. And we've kind of grown beyond just a games community into a community outright. And we try really hard in our code of conduct and sort of in our proactive suggestions for best behaviors and that kind of thing to be a community and a place where people are safe and comfortable and cared for and can explore themselves and the world around them through RPGs uh, in a healthy, you know, welcoming environment. Uh, and, you know, it's not to say that everything is always perfect. You know, there will always be uh, mix-ups and disagreements and that kind of thing, but I'm really proud of what RTR has, has done here in this area. Uh, and one of the things that I think is most impressive that they've done is this thing they call semi-organized play. Uh, so, you know, Coming up close to 10 years ago now, maybe eight or so, uh, a group of GMs decided they wanted to do something like uh, some of the professionally published organized play campaigns, stuff like D&D Encounters, Living Greyhawk, that kind of stuff. But they wanted to do it with other systems uh, and with worlds of their own creation. Uh, so starting out, uh, I, honestly at this point I forget if Miskatonic came first or the Contingent. I think Miskatonic. Uh, they spun up these campaigns where several GMs would collaborate together, uh, sort of design a season-long plot arc, and then all the GMs would contribute multiple sessions sort of along that arc's path. And each week, uh, a pool of some of those GMs would run sessions simultaneously. Players could sign up publicly through RTR's uh, meetup site, uh, pick the table or mission that sounded coolest to them in a given week, and then play a consistent character through that arc. You know, each week, each GM would reveal a different piece of the puzzle, a different component of the mystery. And those sessions would all kind of build off of each other, with the expectation that between games, the players are getting together to chat and share information and hype each other up, hopefully. Uh, and then sort of by the end of the season, and we run these three months at a time, all year long. Uh, you know, the GMs hopefully pull off a, a big, cool finale, and the players get to do something awesome and maybe save the world or the galaxy or 
creation itself. Uh, and then, you know, we put that SOP to rest uh, and run a different season of something else. And as long as it was successful and appreciated and the GMs still have that creative drive and energy, they'll run a new season in the new year. Um, and, uh, and really some of my most rewarding experiences as a player and a GM alike have come through this SOP system. Uh, so the first one I got to play in, you know, I mentioned previously was new guard that teen superheroes RPG, uh, where everyone definitely just wasn't working through, uh, all of the sort of lingering trauma of being a nerd in high school with their awesome heroic teen superhero characters. Uh, but I found that encouraged a lot of really great role play and having this kind of, you know, 20 plus person class of teen superheroes who are mixing and matching between missions every week made that teen heroes high school setting feel so much more real. And, you know, every week after the games, we would all, you know, pop over to a nearby bar and, you know, just stay up until all hours of the night trying to figure out what the big plot was. Um, a couple of years later, I got to start my own SOP, uh, called seek the stars, uh, which is this sort of comedy action sci-fi game. Uh, I used to say it was like, uh, uh, you know, super troopers in space, but then I realized I've never actually seen super troopers. So maybe that's <laughs> not a good example to use. Uh, but the players, uh, were sort of the, uh, I call them the last worst hope of the galaxy. They were the washouts of, uh, of the totally not Starfleet, the Space Patrol, uh, who had sort of been sent to this backwater starbase to just, you know, not screw things up worse than they already had, and then kind of get accidentally embroiled in all this crazy galactic intrigue that's like way above their pay scale and hopefully live to tell the tale. Uh, we've been running Seat the Stars for four years now. Uh, we're actually uh, about to wrap up our fourth season. Uh, I'm not going to spoil anything in case this episode comes out before that finale, but I'm just going to say it's going to be pretty exciting, and I'm very excited for that. Uh, and yeah, you know, every year it seems like we're spitting up new SOPs or pulling in new GMs into the fold, uh, and just that that level of excitement and community is just amazing. And and I don't know of almost any any other group that's doing something on that scale for that length of time. Uh, I'm, I'm just consistently blown away by it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, did you say each um, SOP uh, season typically lasts about a year? Uh, they last three months in one year, and then the next year they can come back. Uh, so generally speaking, we'll run a session zero sort of at the start of each SOP season. Let new people make characters if they're joining after a couple of seasons have gone by, or let old players update their characters and kind of reintroduce everyone and, and you know, a welcome back kind of thing. Uh, and then we'll have six sessions every other week over that three-month span. Um, and during each session, depending on the size of the SOP and, and how many GMs they have, uh, we'll probably run two or two to four tables every week. Uh, so, you know, by the end of it, you've got as many as maybe 28 total sessions that have been run, including the session zero. It is, uh, it is a lot of work. So to your question, although we might only run three months at a time, we're generally working year round. Uh, once we wrap up, see the start of season four, we will have a couple of months off, uh, to enjoy our summers. Uh, but by October, we're gonna, 
you know, be back to the grindstone plotting out season five and seeing if we can go even bigger and crazier than we did this year. And so that's a collaborative kind of event, I assume, where all the GMs get together and plan everything out and then break things up into the kind of general idea of what the individual sessions are going to be. Yeah. And, you know, different groups run things differently. Um, you know, Miskatonic over the last couple of years has kind of transitioned to more of sort of a, an anthology series, kind of like American Horror Story almost, uh, where week to week you're kind of bouncing around different timelines in this kind of Lovecraftian horror setting. Um, the team for Contingent, which is sort of the modern day urban horror played using Chronicles of Darkness, uh, which is sort of an offshoot of World of Darkness. Um, if I understand correctly, I think their GMs kind of split up the different kind of supernatural factions amongst themselves. So, you know, one person is the expert on the vampires and they kind of divvy the work up that way, uh, with seek the stars for better or for worse. Uh, I try to run it as democratically as possible. Cause I really hate making decisions and telling people what to do, even though sometimes I should probably do a better job of that. Um, you know, that's one that started out as a, as a setting of my own imagining, also from a really bad sci-fi novel I was trying to write in high school that never went anywhere good. Uh, but genuinely, genuinely, it is so much better now, after four years of contributions from those other GMs and the players we've had along the way, uh, and contributions from players in, in this precursor campaign I ran a few years before called Spaceward Ho! Uh they have all thought of so much better stuff than my imagination could have ever come up with. And that creative energy of getting, you know, four or five GMs in a room brainstorming a, a season, like a season of TV is just out of this world. I really can't describe how cool it is. Well, that makes, makes it something that I would like to try now. Cause that does sound like a lot of fun. Um, how is it for the players in terms of freedom? Do they have, are they more like railroaded kind of to get through the story or how does that work? There's some variation there too, for sure. Um, like I said, some of them have kind of moved to more of like almost an anthology series where it's more like interconnected one shots. Uh, and some of them are a little bit more plot heavy. And that's just one of those things that we break down to the players in session zero. Hey, we all love our totally improvised narrative games here in RTR, but part of the buy-in, if you're going to sign up for this experience, is be willing to kind of go along with the premise we present to you each week. And that's part of that sign-up process, right? You know, we present this array of missions in most of the different SOPs. Uh, so, for instance, this year in Seek the Stars, uh, we kind of have three tracks running every week. One track is main plot, and that is... Here's the stuff y'all have got to know and the problems y'all have got to solve if you're going to live to the end of the season. Uh, the second track is what we call the Greater Galaxy track, and that's kind of giving them a chance to explore the universe, bounce around to different planets, and see the friends they've made in previous years, and see how that main plot, which is a bunch of evil living spaceships are going to come blow everybody up if we don't stop them, is affecting all their friends across the galaxy and trying to kind of keep down panic and do some community building. And then that third track, we just call it player driven. And that's for the sessions where it's kind of anything goes, no holds barred. 
if you dig deep, you're going to find some cool clues in connection to the main storyline. But if you're just looking to goof off, sign up for the player-driven table. Sure. So you can kind of separate it out. Um, and the buy-in makes sense, too. And you mentioned having it be kind of like a TV show almost. Like, you go into the show with, like, a trailer, kind of expecting what the show's going to be about. And then you don't expect it to just, like, veer off course and then be about something completely different. So having those expectations up front makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Although it's it's funny you bring up railroading. Kind of one of the <laughs> the living legends in the SOP community here is there was a particular session of, I think it was The Contingent, you know, that, that modern-day horror game, uh, where uh, at one point the players were expected to board a very clearly haunted train to solve the mystery aboard it. And all their characters were like, no, we absolutely will not get on that train. That is clearly the path to death. Uh, and so for all of that GM's efforts, they managed to not railroad those PCs that session and had to think on their feet pretty fast. That is that is pretty funny that they were able to uh, salvage that session, I guess, maybe is the right word. More or less, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's one of those uh, really great pieces of GMing advice, uh, of many of which I've gotten from him. Uh, one of my, you know, close friends here in this area and, and uh, a frequent game master of both kind of normal home games and some of the SOPs previously, uh, Justin, um, when we were designing a season of an SOP, was like, so what exactly happens if your players fail the session you're writing, Randy? Because it sounds like there's no way forward if they fail that. And is that something you're prepared to deal with? Uh, which is a good question. And so as much as we kind of want the players to buy in and kind of go along with what we said this week was going to be about at least roughly, the GMs kind of have to keep that in mind too of like, uh, if, if every single session could potentially throw the entire season off, you're not just messing up, you know, your one session or your one story, you're potentially messing things up for a group of two or three or four other GMs who've been working for months to put this thing together. So you want to stay in close communication. You want to make sure the sessions that you're running each week, kind of however they wind up going, can at least progress things enough that the next week's GMs can kind of pick up and continue from there. And what are your biggest challenges as a GM with running something like this? There's a handful. Uh, one is, since we do do those open signups in our player pools of over the years, numbered from about 10 to over 20, uh, you never quite know who you're going to get in a given week until just a few days before the session drops. So we've had to come up with all sorts of different ways of kind of tracking what player characters are up to over the course of, uh, of a season. Because, you know, every player is going to want to tell their own cool story for their player character, and we want to enable them to do that. Uh, but if you can't predict necessarily what table they're going to wind up at or what mission they're going to go up, you know, and, and take care of, uh, how do you maintain that cohesive internal narrative for that character? So, you know, we're having to pass notes back and forth, uh, you know, a couple weeks back, uh, one character, Jim Humanson, uh, took a deal from his totally not evil space monster corporate masters, uh, and, uh, is now maybe donning uh, a, a glimmering spectral business suit 
but it turns out he maybe can't take off. And <laughs> I've kind of had to <laughs> let the other GMs in on what's going on there so that wherever Jim Humanson winds up next, that GM can kind of pick up that thread. Uh, no pun intended on the sweeping <laughs> threads. Um, so that's tough. You know, obviously the whole just designing uh, a story arc that you can tell in pieces, because, you know, each of these games is still a one-shot, essentially, right? Like, you've got four hours at the game store, or nowadays, you know, via Jitsi and Roll20. You've got four hours, and that's it. You've got to hook the players, give them something cool to work on, give them a satisfying finale, and convey whatever pieces of the mystery you're supposed to reveal that week in four hours, accounting for all of the crazy nonsense that players always throw into a game. That's tough. Like That's a genuine design challenge, and I can't say we've always done that perfectly, but I like to think that this many years into it, we've kind of started to hammer some of those sore spots out. Sounds like for the most part, you've got a system down that at least works, and people are... Um are still coming back to play. So, I mean, that's kind of your main thing there. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, some of these folks have been around for a long time. Some of these characters have been around for a long time. So, you know, we very much appreciate that. And uh, and I love the fact that there's so much buy-in from the community. You know, people who are playing in one game are going to be GMs, you know, in the next season. So, ideally, the goal is to keep the community healthy and to make sure that nobody's getting too burnt out we're all going to share that burden and tell really cool, fun stories for each other. I know it definitely helps for me. Um, if you GM too much, you do get that burnout. And then playing in a game usually is like starts getting your, your mind spinning again on like, Oh, this would be cool. This would be cool. I should, you know, I should run a campaign like this. Um, just to not have to have that mental load as a GM can help refresh it a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. And and also that kind of quiet thought in the back of your brain. If I were doing this, I would totally do it this way. <laughs> do you guys um, run this uh, in person, or have you taken it online? Uh, so, you know, COVID definitely changed things a lot, uh, both for me personally and, and for the group that I'm a part of as well. Um, yeah, all of my campaigns have been strictly online since you know, mid-March of, uh, of 2020, uh, which has been, you know, rough. I, I'll, I'll say up front, uh, as a GM, one of my techniques, styles, whatever you want to call it, is that I very much kind of feed off of the energy of the table. And I'm constantly kind of, you know, bouncing my eye from person to person, trying to read their mood, seeing what they're reacting to, what's making them smile, what's making them look down at their phone because they're getting bored listening into those little side conversations and jokes players are telling to see if there's a cool, funny thing I can pull out of that and stick in the game. Um, and then just that kind of just that natural energy you get when you're at a table with people and you can kind of point at them and say, Hey, you, what do you do about blank? Uh, and it's been hard to transition that energy and that style to online play when my friends are just suddenly a little, you know, 320 by 160 pixel boxes of kind of washed out colors scattered across my monitor. Uh, other folks have adapted to do it better, and I've certainly, you know, learned to get along. Uh, but I'm very much looking forward to returning to in-person. On the flip side, 
uh, you know, moving online has definitely opened some things up for us. Um, in one campaign I'm a player in, and that you know is actually one of the first campaigns I joined when I got here. Uh, my friend Cord runs D and D for us. Uh, one of our players uh, wound up moving to California, and you know when we first learned about that move, we were thinking, well, you know, gosh, we might not get to play with Brian anymore. That would really suck. He's been here since the beginning. Well, we've been online for you know a year and a quarter now, and Brian can still just tune in from California. And you know, same deal. I'm I'm in a Curse of Strahd game, uh, you know, that my friend Justin runs, and, uh, you know, he's got this close friend who lives up in New York, and we've been able to pull that friend from New York into that campaign, and we're really enjoying playing with him, so we're probably going to stay online, uh, just so we can kind of continue that experience. And, you know, online is cool in other ways. Uh, I always joke, there's no more dice for me to drop and have to crawl underneath the table (laughs) to find. Um... So, you know, ups and downs, but uh, our hope is for RTR as a whole to probably start doing in-person gaming again in the fall. And uh, I'm personally, you know, spinning up a new home game uh, that I'm going to start up on Thursday (laughs) uh, that will be in person as well. And I'm really excited for that. Sure. And when you are online, what tools are you using to run those games? Uh, A bunch of different stuff. (laughs) Um... We've mostly settled on a video and voice chat tool called Jitsi. Um, it's a, a little bit more, I don't know, privacy respecting, runs cleanly on uh, novel OSs like Linux kind of thing that was important to some of our membership. Uh, so we're using Jitsi mostly for uh, video and voice. Um, we have a really active community Discord that we can do for text chat, and there's a, a actually surprisingly sophisticated, well-programmed die roller in there. And we've got like a rolls bot so we can at ping everybody who's in a certain SOP or who's going to be taking part in a certain uh, mini con. Um, a lot of us have been using roll 20 for the different campaigns, you know, for stuff like mutants and masterminds, you know, you really want to have some of that uh, computer aid crunching some of those numbers on die rolls and stuff. It's definitely very handy uh, for my part. Um, weird brief aside that we can dig into later if you think it's interesting. I have fairly, I don't know how to say, final or or pretty definitive aphantasia. I essentially don't have a sensory imagination. I can't see pictures in my head. I can't hear songs in my head. I can't remember what things taste like and actually taste them in my imagination. Uh, So for me, you know, running RPGs, it's hard for me to remember some of the visual aspects that other people really kind of need to get into the moment and, and let their imaginations run wild. So having a tool that just prompts me continuously to make handouts with cool pictures on it is a really good reminder to do that for people. Uh, whereas for some of the other campaigns, you know, maybe a little bit less number heavy, uh, we've had people make these really cool, like Google Sheets and Google Docs, you know, macro enabled g-wiz kind of tools to track character sheets or uh uh track chases in chronicles of darkness and stuff so people have you know just really kind of shown up with a bunch of cool stuff um you know i've been trying to work in you know more audio in my campaigns you know using roll 20 or uh was it tabletop audio stuff like that so yeah it's 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 definitely there's a lot of really cool tools and i'm almost wondering how many of them can i drag back in person with me somehow the audio is interesting. I have been using in one of uh, one of my Star Wars ones. I used a 
Discord bot called Groovy, and basically it just plays a you know like a YouTube track, like you just give it the URL and it'll play it. Um, but that works really well for just queuing up some you know classic Star Wars music to have in the background, and then kind of swapping between tracks. But yes, I feel like a lot of the tools you you should be able to use in person. Um, at least audio wouldn't be too bad because you would you could just run that from your own you know computer but if most people have laptops or something that they can bring you could do that to uh, bring maps and stuff like with roll 20 or if you threw uh, what i would like to do is make like a either a full game table with a monitor built into it or um, i have seen people where they just kind of like make a box with a monitor in it that they can set on their table when they're playing and hook that up to a computer to do digital maps. Um, either one of those would be good as well. Yeah, honestly, I'm a little sad. One of the game stores we used to run a lot of our events at, uh, Event Horizon, sadly closed over the pandemic. Um, that was just kind of the, the final nail in the coffin for them, sadly. Uh, but they had, you know, in their private gaming rooms, those really cool gaming tables with the TVs built in like you're talking about. And it, yeah, it's real cool. There's nowhere in my apartment I could possibly fit one of those, but if I could, I totally would. My problem is if I were to build one, I would want to get like the biggest TV possible in there so that you have the most space for um, boards and everything. And then people don't have to maybe reach as far, but it's hard to justify spending, you know, like, 500 to a thousand dollars on a really big tv that's only going to get used on the gaming table like once a month when people come over <laughs> yeah that's really fair on the flip side you know if you're upgrading your living room tv and you've got this old tv that's got to go somewhere maybe that just goes into a game table that's a good excuse to upgrade the living room yeah know. there we go there we go that's the way to sneak it into the my wife's budget <laughs> yeah. I really think we should get a new TV upstairs. Yeah. There's so much new technology these days, right? Um, but no, you know, you're you're totally right about like, you know bringing stuff in person. Um, you know, for a few years now, I've tended to bring like a little uh, like Bluetooth speaker with me to sessions. Um, if my players aren't annoyed by it, I'll try to have a soundtrack going. Uh, I definitely ran a session uh, where the players got zapped back in time to a mall in the '90s that was under attack by aliens from the evil terminus dimension and i just had like the greatest hits of 1994 on cue um at you know at gen con and some of the local cons i've run a session called um oh gosh let's uh, let's make sure i get the full name correct the final performance of the hell knights of the underdark featuring death throne ascendancy uh which is just a a very like metalocalypse inspired kind of uh sure. you're a fantasy heavy metal band uh, whose opening band have, uh, spoilers, made a deal with a demon to usurp you, and you've got to take them out. And so, of course, I've just got like five hours of sick heavy metal that I can play <laughs> in the background. That's awesome. Um, uh, back on that, like, sensory thing, my wife, she's never been, like, diagnosed with anything, but she has a very difficult time um, picturing things in her mind. So like if you told her to picture a pink elephant, like she like she can't do that. So uh we found out that basically theater of the mind just does not work very well for her because she just can't 
Like, there is no theater. It's And you said you kind of have something similar? Uh, yeah. Sorry, I lost your audio there for a bit. But, uh, but yeah, um, it's... Oh, it's difficult to describe because I don't think it makes sense to other folks, but essentially, you know, my head is kind of like a running, not even quite verbal, but a sort of textual narrative. Um, I just, I think in like you would read a book, except I'm not imagining the stuff that the book is talking about. Um, for whatever reason, that's never really bothered me with RPGs. I think maybe because I've kind of never, you know, bothered to imagine books I'm reading or, or, you know, imagine what could happen next in a movie I just saw, you know, I kind of just enjoy stories sort of for themselves almost. And also I'm just a giant extrovert that likes having an excuse to schedule my friends that they have to be in a room with me for four hours every two weeks. So, you know, tabletop RPGs for me are awesome. Uh, but I realize that I probably come at them from a very different way than a lot of other people do. Like I have friends who were like, man, I wish we could make a cartoon out of this session. It's so crazy. And I'm like, oh, is it? <laughs> I guess. If you say so. Um, maybe yeah, maybe and... you should make a cartoon so I can see. <laughs> yeah, because I'm completely opposite. I have a, I, I don't, wouldn't say that it's quite like photographic in terms of memory, but like I can picture stuff pretty vividly. Um, and so there's just different skills, you know, even outside of, of like RPGs that I just am much better at than my wife because I have that kind of memory and I can remember things and what they look like where she can't necessarily do that. But then she's also better at a lot of other things than I am just because our, our brains are fundamentally different. Hey, you know, you fill in each other's gaps. That's, that's part of what makes it work, right? Yep. I cannot read, uh, people's emotions to save my life. So, um, that's what she is for. <laughs> well, it's awesome that y'all can, you know, kind of teamwork stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, in, in a lot, I mean, it's like a hokey comparison, but you know, that's kind of like a, you know, good RPG, right? Is, you know, everybody else is bringing something cool to the table. Uh, so, you know, even if I'm not necessarily going to always have the coolest, you know, visual descriptions, I know my players are going to really amp that element up uh, and make things better, you know, together. And you mentioned when you were talking about getting into um, a room with a bunch of GMs to kind of plan out the sessions and how, um, you know, they all had like better ideas than you could ever think of. I think one of the, that kind of comes up just playing games with your players and especially on like missed roles and stuff. A lot of times they'll be like, oh, this probably happens. And you're like, oh, that is much worse than I had in mind. That's great. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, first of all, you're right. They will always somehow be crueler to their characters than, than you would ever think to be. Um, but, you know, honestly, so I've actually had a few opportunities recently to do some co-GMing. Like, not just we wrote a season together, but, like, literally, like, we're going to run simultaneously at a table with each other or virtual table. And that is such a huge load off, you know, <laughs> never again. Do you have to have a conversation with yourself? If the players get two NPCs talking, cause there's another GM there who can fill in. Um, or, you know, that same deal. If, if somebody asks, so what happens when we blank and you're having just a, a you know, mental blank on it, look to your co GM and say, I don't know what crazy thing does happen. Friend, um, is 
really cool. Uh, I'm looking for more ways to incorporate that into my gaming going forward because the few times I've gotten to do it, it's just a, a consistently great experience. So I have not heard of people co-DMing before. Um, the one thing that comes to mind for me would be um, like having different ideas of what is supposed to happen, but I suppose you kind of talk about what the plans are for the session ahead of time and kind of the overall story. And then, I mean, effectively, you're both going in two minds with the same idea, right? Yeah, ideally. Uh, and, but, you know, kind of like before, you know, uh, uh, the extra ideas can be great. So, you know, there have been times where the co-GM wants to throw a, a compel, which is a, a fate mechanic that takes one of your aspects that describes how awesome your character and is and, and turns it against them. And as a reward, you get, you know, some of that in-game resource fate points. Uh, and so, you know, my co-GMs have, uh, have suggested some compels that are way worse than anything I was thinking about, but are going to take the session in a really cool direction if the player goes for it. So, uh, yeah, I think as long as you kind of like know where things are supposed to start and where they're supposed to end and you more or less agree on kind of who the NPCs are as people and, and roughly how they respond to stuff. Uh, as long as you're willing to accept a little bit of additional chaos, I think it's worth giving a shot. I can see the mental load um, reduction just being extremely helpful along with the, just especially the NPCs talking to each other because that can get weird um, or just kind of exhausting to do, you know? Um just being able to take some of those things away would probably outweigh most of the negatives that could come with co-GMing. Yeah. Hey, just having one person to keep track of all the numbers and status effects and, you know, uh, uh, turn timers and, and, you know, exhausting effects and all that stuff. If just one person's job is to worry about that and the other person's the one worried about describing the combat, that's also huge. I have heard of people offloading some of that information onto players, like to say, mm -hmm. "Here's, here you get these two enemies, and you just keep track of all their stats and stuff for me, um, and then you know I'll just tell you what they do, but you handle all the math and stuff, so I don't have to think about it." That was probably one of my biggest stumbling blocks when I first ran a one shot for D and D was <clears throat> trying to keep track of all of the numbers and the hit points on like you know, four or five different monsters in a battle. And I was like, man, this is like, I'm not even really concerned about the narrative at this point. And there's just a lot of stuff that it's like, okay, stop. Let me, uh, okay. He took four damage and, you know, let me write that down quick. Okay. Oh, yep. You killed him. Um, you know, that, that can be a lot. It can. And I mean, in systems like D and D where there's so many variables, like, Two turns later, you realize, oh crap! Actually, he'd gotten temp HP from the from the cleric on the other guy's side, so he actually wouldn't be dead. But do I really want to retcon the last like eight player turns, or just let it slide? Uh, yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, you know, I recall like when we were running Exalted. Uh, you know, I was one of the GMs on that team. Uh, in in Exalted Three E, uh, you can make two different kinds of attacks. Uh, you can make, you know, withering attacks, and I think they're called decisive attacks is the other one. Um, I would look it up, but my keyboard is loud. Uh, anyways, it's basically kind of meant to emulate that whole, like, thing from, like, cool kung fu movies of, like, you know, you're punching back and forth for 20 minutes, flipping off of rooftops and stuff, 
but then somehow the final blow is just like one like knife between the ribs and you know the scene goes black or whatever uh so withering attacks drain your opponent's initiative and convert that into dice to use for your uh decisive attacks which is how you can wind up with 40 dice to roll uh but you know that means if you've got a combat you know with five players and like a handful of mook bad guys and like a lead bad guy and then all of them are withering attacking each other back and forth you know initiative counts are just going crazy back and forth up and down the whole time uh yeah i i frequently just handed a whiteboard and some magnets to my players and said y'all keep track of who goes when and i'll tell you what happens when they do uh, and that's something that i kind of like about some of the more narrative games um like blades in the dark a little bit and um is anything where they kind of hold back on the hit points and just say like i mean if you if you shoot the guy point blank he's gonna die right like in and not necessarily worry with a lot of that crunch of the numbers and and take some of that out and you know if it's like a heavily armed guy or whatever then maybe it he gets a like in blades he would get a timer or something to say okay he can take like three big hits and then he's dead but other than that it's pretty like if you're hitting people you're gonna go down pretty quick if you can get a, a square hit on them Honestly, it's something I steal from 4E all the time is like the, the one hit minions and the two hit minions. I'm just like, I don't care how strong or weak it is. If, if you get an attack off on them, they'll wipe them out or you need at least two to knock them out. Uh, it's just so much easier to keep track of. And, and you know, like it's good enough for, for you know, I, I hate the phrase good enough for government work because I work for the government. But, you know, it's good enough for uh, <laughs> for tired GMing work. Um but, you know, the flip side of it is, you know, I tend to write really, really elaborate prep docs. Like, if I'm running a one-shot at a con or if I'm running a session for an SOP, it's not uncommon to have 20 pages of notes for, like, a four-hour block of time. But honestly, for me, a lot of that is if I just write down all of the descriptions of things and what the NPC's motivations are and, like, stat blocks if the game has them and all that stuff... That means that it's, it's you know, kind of like that thing in school where, like, if you actually wrote notes in class, just the act of writing the notes sometimes made it easier to remember for the yep. test, even if you never bothered to go back and read your illegible notes. Um, maybe that's just a problem for me. I don't know. I have bad handwriting. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, doing doing all that writing somehow kind of, like, locks stuff in my head. And at least gives me... Uh, parameters for like about how hard should a thing be or about how much should an NPC try to do this before they give up. And honestly, sometimes again, spoiler to my players, if you're in any of my games, I'll just read the table's reaction to a role. And if they're super excited about somebody getting like an 18 on a D 20 or getting a plus seven in fate, you know, maybe that's just enough to win the combat because everybody was so pumped about what the dice said. Right. And on a high note versus the, the paper cut death where they that player does a ton of damage and then the next person comes by and does like three and it's like oh that killed him that was enough yep yep <laughs> not um, a fan of that i don't i don't like the mop-up stuff uh the mook rules right the one hit um one hit and two hit minions um i did something similar to that for a DD game that i had run um, and I basically, I said, I think they were fighting goblins or something small. 
And I didn't want to track the hit points individually, so I, I just made this rule in my head and said, as long as they roll more than one damage on, on their damage roll, they'll kill it. So if they, if they roll a one, doesn't kill it, but if they roll anything better than that, they'll kill it. So <laughs> they ended up, I think there was like two goblins or something that they had rolled poorly on their damage roll, so they survived a couple rounds and then they had like calculated they were taking notes they're like okay so he took one damage the first time and then he took six damage the second time and that killed him so he has at least seven health or you know no more than seven health it's like no that's that's not quite what i was going for but they think that all the goblins have seven health now so <laughs> it's one of those things i go back and forth on all the time of like how much to bother like correcting little misconceptions that probably aren't going to become a problem, but maybe they will eventually. Um, you know, if, if it's a game with a ton of clues and stuff and the players are going off on some like wild tangent, it can be fun to let them spiral for a while. But the flip side, if it's, you know, if it's a con game and we got two and a half hours left, sometimes I'll just be like, you know what, actually, um, she wasn't there for the murder and actually no, the goblins don't have seven HP. Let's, <laughs> let's just, your characters are competent, intelligent people. They figured it out. Something that I have seen people argue about online a lot is, like, kind of like you said, how much information do you give your players? And as far as like stats and like target numbers or difficulties are concerned, I, I guess I am more of the opinion now that like who cares if they if the players know what it is and um, it just speeds up play, right? Um, yeah. Like if there's really no point in saying and not telling your players that oh this orc has a 14 armor class because then every time they roll they'll just be like I rolled a 15 does it hit? You just say you have to roll better than a 14 you can just kind of move on with that. Um, and the guy who made um, index card RPG I don't know if you've seen him at all uh, or any of his stuff. Uh, he talks about um, setting a one difficulty class or DC for like an entire like room or scene. Mm -hmm. And so you'd say, okay, so this is not too hard of a room, so it's DC 12. And he'll take like a, a big red D20 and set it on the table and say, anything that you roll in here is going to be this difficult in order to succeed or fail so all the enemies all the and just a combination of like the environment the chaos that's happening the enemies is what determines that number not like all of the individual things having their own difficulty right and it just speeds up play because the players can roll and they know it immediately did i succeed or not um and i think for the most part for some of that simple stuff like it doesn't really matter if the players know how much health a a minion has or or what the exact difficulty is of certain things because it's just kind of it just kind of muddies the water and in like my previous example they will attempt to figure it out anyways so they, they yeah. have the ability to to calculate it based on how many how low it gets when you say yes or no to things so yeah they're they're gonna zero in and you know honestly i think of it in terms of like what's going to create the drama that you want to create um, I tend to be pretty meta forward. I tend to roll in the open, you know, fate does a similar thing to what you were talking about. Like in general, creating an advantage for your team difficulty too. 
whatever the enemy is like rolling against the player, you know, you let them know what the enemy's tally was. So they know what they're aiming for. And in that case, the drama kind of comes from that tension of like, you know, crap, like I need a six and I've got a five. And if I spend my last fate point to get to beat that six, the next turn I've got not any, I've got nothing left in the tank. And you know, that, that tension then kind of pivots from the, like, what is the dice roll going to say to how do I cope with the dice roll that I've made? And, and for me, at least I tend to prefer that. I kind of prefer the systems where you, you can tweak things after the fact as compared to the ones where you kind of got to, you know, blow all of your bonuses before the roll. Like, uh, I think a lot of stuff about Numenera is a really cool setting and stuff, but it drove me crazy how I had to like spend all my little Numenera bits before my die roll to make it easier. And then I roll a one and it didn't matter. Or I roll a 20 and it didn't matter. And that just drove me nuts. I was like, no, no, let me spend afterward and let, let the drama come there. But you know, right. then you compare Having that, that tension from knowing kind of what the stakes are versus just the randomness. Yeah, or I mean, you know, think about, you know, Power of the Apocalypse, where most PBTA games, not all, because it's not necessarily a part of the system, but most of them run with that uh, success bands thing. If you roll higher than a 10, you get a full success, everything you want. If you roll, what is it, like a 7 to 9, you, you know, get some of what you want, but there's going to be a downside, and 6 or below, things go poorly, the GM's going to make a move, and your life's about to get real, real unfortunate for a second, but the story's going to progress in a cool way anyway. You know, there, the targets are always the same, every single die roll, and, and the drama is just coming from the experience that you and your friends at the table are crafting around that instead. Uh, it's not to say one is, I don't know, better than the other, but I think it's nice to have both things in your toolbox if you need them. Um, along those lines, and with like the room difficulty level, uh, one of the things that um, he mentions in ICRPG is He's like, yeah, 12 doesn't sound bad as a difficulty class, right? That that seems pretty low. But the dice will be unforgiving. Uh, and they will, you know, they will fail more than you think. And I definitely experienced that with Blades, too, when we played um, just last week on the server. Um, I rolled three, at three separate attacks. I threw a knife. I tried to shoot somebody with a gun and tried to punch somebody in the face. All of my attacks, I was able to roll four dice on the rolls, and I failed every single roll, <laughs> rolling um all less than three on everything, <laughs> which um, statistically is pretty rare uh, to do that. But yeah, I think somebody <laughs> said the odds were like one in four thousand. Yeah, yep. And my, yeah, my first ever uh, experience of playing uh, Blades in the Dark, I had a one in four thousand chance of failing all three of my my attacks. Um, and the character is now affectionately known as Whiff, uh, but the the dice oh, will be good. the dice will be cruel, uh, even if it doesn't seem like the um, the stakes are that high, or uh, your or even if your success seems assured, it they will betray you. <laughs> I'll be honest; I have catastrophically bad luck with dice. As a player, that's funny and fun. As a GM. I kind of hate whenever it saps the drama from things of like, here's the big bad that you've been coming up on the entire season. And I roll, you know, three critical fails or three minus fours or whatever in a row. So 
I'm also kind of coming around to those systems without dice or other other resolution mechanics. Um, you know, uh, uh, we're about to do our world building session for this campaign I'm spinning up, which is going to be uh, a homebrewed uh, Power of the Apocalypse game. You know, very like Shira slash Voltron kind of like magical mm-hmm. magical kids in sci-fi conflict sort of thing. Uh, but for world building, we're using a system called the Quiet Year, uh, which is basically using a deck of cards as the sort of randomness generator. Each card is associated with different prompts of good or bad things that could happen to the community and world you're all building together. And uh, and so, you know, here it's the luck of the shuffle, not the luck of the roll. Uh, or, you know, uh, a while back, a friend of mine ran a session of Ribbon Drive, which is the game of playlists and road trips. And it's basically just more of a narrative. You know, there's not there's never really any dice rolls at all. Uh, uh, you're playing playlists and kind of letting the music and the lyrics set the tone of each scene that you open up. And then you just kind of role play off of that until it feels like your characters have kind of come to an emotionally satisfying conclusion to their road trip. That, mind you, in that case, we were playing a bunch of ex-space pirates on a trip across the stars to deliver medical supplies. But, you know, <laughs> the, the the premise still mostly Same holds. Same idea. Yeah. But I don't know. I love stuff like that. I remember seeing a resolution mechanic that was like, um, whenever you did, so like it was specifically like if you're playing on like a road trip or you're somewhere where you don't have access to dice, you know, somehow, which with phones and stuff nowadays is highly unlikely. Um, but one of the, one of the mechanics was like to use like the first number on the next like license plate that you saw or like road sign or something. And then one of the other ones was like, take out your credit card and then you just like go down the line of your credit card number and that's the number that you get for your quote unquote roll. Um, <laughs> so you have like a list of basically pre-generated uh, numbers for your uh, your results. <laughs> Where I can just hear like an entropy researcher weeping at the thought of <laughs> You know, whatever credit cards are in your wallet as your sole source of randomness. <laughs> but, you know, heck, for a game, it, it's probably enough. Or, you know, again, like just a game that doesn't have, doesn't worry about it at all. You know, uh, like I really wanted to play one of these uh, belonging without belonging or belonging outside belonging uh, slash no dice, no masters systems. Uh, Avery Adler uh, kind of, you know, created the first one and, and it's kind of expanded from there. Uh, it's there's just sort of different play sheets that kind of describe like a kind of scene that's coming up in your story and you're sort of bouncing around between this stuff. Uh, uh, and your characters have like a strong move or a weak move and you can only use your strong move so many times before you kind of got to, you know, suck it up and do the weak move instead, or, or, you know, let other people kind of control the narrative for a while, which facilitates the conversation of play and, and gives you that kind of organic up and down. But you know, you're you're really just kind of living in the moment of what the game is about, as compared to, you know, in my case, scrambling all over the floor looking for the dice I dropped ten minutes ago. <laughs> well, we are getting about to time here. It's been a lot of fun talking with you, Randy. Um, you did mention that you have maybe an aspirational YouTube channel. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Here's the thing. Uh, let's let's use this as an excuse to uh, give me a kick in the pants and work on it. <laughs> uh, an idea I've been brainstorming for a while and talking with some friends about uh, is called Learn to RPG. Uh, all one word, all spelled out. Uh, and the goal is to have sort of a YouTube slash social media nexus for talking about how to be a good role player, whether you're a GM or a player, very system agnostic. Uh, you know, so much of the content that's available out there right now is very D and D focused from adventuring Academy to web DM to Matt Colville. And all those people are awesome and they have incredible advice. Uh, but there is just such an awesome variety of games out there and such a really amazing variety of different ways to play and experience RPGs together. Uh, I just kind of want to shine a light on that, share a little bit of what I've learned and share what other people have shared with me and taught me and uh, hopefully, you know, help people play cool games and have fun with each other is the goal. So keep a lookout for that. Depending, you know, how long of a gap between this episode, there might be something there or maybe check back in a week or two. Awesome. Well, that sounds awesome. I, I do definitely like the system agnostic approach to getting uh, more information. That's kind of what I like to do here because there's a lot of things you can pull from one game and then you can plug that back into D&D or, you know, vice versa. So um, definitely looking forward to that channel, getting some content. Um, so I, I will be hanging out over there uh, whenever that's ready. And I think people should stick around on this channel and or podcast subscription, depending on how you're coming across Dungeon Master's Toolkit, precisely because of that. I have heard some really cool stuff from a variety of GMs and DMs already in your interviews. Uh, had some person who like designed this awesome game about like dungeon design and all that stuff. So yeah, there's there's a ton of cool stuff out there. You found some awesome people to interview. People should stick around and listen to more. Well, awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server. 